Hello and welcome to the sixth part of my lecture series, COVID-19, Dodgy Science, Woeful Ethics. Disease containment is presented to us not merely as a scientific imperative, but also as a moral one. The reasoning goes that if we do not contain the disease, then not only will it spread to make more people sick, but those who are poor and countries that are poor will have more among them falling ill owing to population density and more of those ill people will die owing to their own general poverty-related ill health and the lack of hospital infrastructure to treat them. This is well meant and public health experts and community advocates for poor and marginalized groups repeatedly make this point. In India and Brazil, right from the start, it has been anticipated that people in slums and favelas would be the hardest hit by COVID-19. But that is not quite how things turned out. Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, who has resisted lockdown on principle, was widely criticized for not caring for the favelas, which it was said would surely see the worst of a COVID outbreak. But what we need to understand about Brazil is that contrary to the popular belief that it had no lockdown, in fact, state governors did impose lockdown. Bolsonaro was critical of these measures, but as president, he did not have the power to stop them. 25 of his 27 state governors went against his preferred course of less stringent measures <clears throat> and began imposing containment measures including calls for people to stay at home, restrictions on public gatherings, and the closure of schools from around March the 17th. This is a week before India's lockdown. By March the 24th, non-essential businesses and quarantine were imposed in the cities of Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo, among other places in Brazil. But despite two months of lockdown, cases in Brazil had grown from around 2,000 on March the 23rd to over 1 lakh, that's over 100,000, by early May, with Sao Paulo accounting, accounting for about 30% of the total cases and Rio de Janeiro for about 11%. But <clears throat> the interesting thing is that hardly any of this came from the favelas. The city of Rio de Janeiro is said to have 1,000 favelas, in which about a quarter of the city's population is said to be living. But the outbreak in Rio started in the richest and most exclusive parts of the city. A month after lockdown, the favela outbreak was still talked of as something that would happen in the future. By early June, cases, although cases nationwide in Brazil had crossed 7 lakh, that's 700,000, and reached over 36,000 cases and 4,500 deaths in Rio de Janeiro City, the COVID outbreak in Rio's favelas, even assuming significant underreporting, was relatively low. <clears throat> was da Comunidade, a well-known favela advocacy group which is tabulating COVID data for favelas, reported a total of about 1,600 cases and about 370 deaths from 15 of the main of the city's main favelas 
in early June. <clears throat> a month later, in early July, according to Vosta Comunidad, the cases had grown by less than a thousand to about 2,300 and the deaths by about a hundred to about 460 deaths in these favelas. On the other hand, the city's overall case count had grown to over 1 lakh cases, over 100,000. <clears> in early July, when cases had doubled over the previous month in Brazil overall, news reports from Sao Paulo still said that favela residents had been spared any major outbreak so far. The favela numbers may well explode in the future, <clears throat> but it is worth looking into why they have not yet done so, despite the congested living conditions, which, according to research, results in people spending 50% more time per day in contact with others than those living in richer areas. I don't know how good this research about 50% more time, but what I am noticing, uh, if you remember yesterday, uh, uh, we, we saw research which said that uh, the elderly in lower income settings uh, have much more contact and uh, much more intergenerational uh, uh, mingling than as you go up the income ladder in countries. And now we are saying that people who live in favela spend more time with each other. So uh, what, what I'm hearing, I'm assuming that any of this research is valid, is that uh, you know people who are in lower, the poorer you get, uh, the more friends you have. <laughs> and the happier you are and i mean uh, this is something that that we need to keep in mind instead of um, only looking at countries like minus charity cases a similar story is heard from slums in other parts of the world bangladesh's rajbari district that houses the daulatia the daulatia slum which is also one of the world's uh, biggest brothels had by early july only about 450 cases as against national figures of over 1.5 lakh cases, that's uh, 150,000. India is said to have 2,613 uh, uh, towns and cities with slums and unauthorized colonies. Unauthorized colonies are uh, congested uh, ghettos. And uh, they, they are said, according to the 2011 uh, census, to house over 6.5 crore people, that's 65 million people. But while COVID-19 cases began appearing steadily in India from the second half of March and had been appearing sporadically since January, it was, till early June, still not a predominantly slum disease. By the end of May, Mumbai, which has been a major hotspot in India's COVID uh, outbreak, had over 39,000 cases, but less than 2,000 of these cases were in Dharavi, which is said to be Asia's largest slum and to have anywhere between 8.75 lakh to 10 lakh residents. That's uh, 875,000 to a million residents in an area of 2.5 square kilometers. And these Dharavi case numbers were based on the screening of nearly half its residents by the third week of May. In April and May, the Indian newspapers tended to talk up the extent of the outbreak in Dharavi. But in fact, as in Rio and Sao Paulo, COVID-19 first came to the richer parts of Mumbai. In late March, it was the well-off G South ward of Mumbai that had the most cases. 
a resident of Malabar Hills, Mumbai's most exclusive locality, who caught COVID-19 in London, was amongst the first cases in Maharashtra. Another early case came from Scotland to Pune, another city in Maharashtra. In the second week of March, cases in Maharashtra were traced to the US, Dubai, Russia, Japan, Singapore, the Philippines, France and the Netherlands. And in Mumbai, most of the early cases were traced to the US. Cases began to appear in Dharavi only in April when there were already 300 cases in Maharashtra, of which nearly 200 were in Mumbai and about 1600 overall in India. At this time, it was reported that there were more COVID-19 cases in Mumbai's quote, upscale areas of Malabar Hills, Pedder Road, Wardley and Dadar. Six weeks after lockdown, at the end of April, Mumbai had over 6,600 cases, of which Dharavi had 344. In early June, Dharavi, Dadar and Mahim, all of these are slums and low-income areas in the G North Ward of Mumbai. They together had just under about 3,000 cases. But at the same time, Mumbai's upscale localities in which super-rich neighbourhoods, uh, areas such as Malabar Hills, Varli, Varsova, are found to have had between 1,000 to 2,000 cases. So you've got 3,000 cases uh, in uh, Dharavi, Mahim and uh, Dadar. And you have uh, between 1,000 and 2,000 each in areas which have these neighbourhoods. Uh, <clears throat> on the other hand, in Mumbai's M East Ward, which has a population of 12 lakh, that's 1.2 million, and comprises lower-income areas like Govandi, Shivaji Nagar and Mankur, there were in the late May, early June time around 1,800 cases. So what you're seeing is that the distribution of cases was fairly uniform across these areas despite great disparities in their relative wealth and population density. Cases in Dharavi fell to nil in the first week of June and showed daily increases only in single digits from about mid-June onwards. Then there was a second wave of cases in Mumbai's posh high-rise buildings. It was reported that of the 379 new cases at the start of June, 320 were from high-rises. Now, coincidentally or not, this rise came weeks after India began to repatriate citizens from overseas, who had been stranded abroad owing to the COVID crisis. By early July, over 28,000 people had been repatriated, of which a third each were from Mumbai and other parts of Maharashtra. Cases rose dramatically in Mumbai in the month of June, more than doubling to over 80,000 cases by early July. But only about 4,200 of these were in the slum and low-income areas of Dharavi, Dadar and Mahim. Of the over 4,600 deaths from COVID in Mumbai by early July, only 82 were from Dharavi. Incidentally, this number in Dharavi is nearly a third of the COVID deaths and about a quarter of the cases in Norway. Even though Norway has about the same to half the population of Dharavi, depending on how many migrant workers fled from Dharavi during the lockdown. By early July, 
cases began to rise in the northern wards of Mumbai and the lower middle to low income areas in its southern wards. The pattern that emerges is not so much of the disease being driven by poverty or congestion, but of its coming into the richer areas of the city via international travel, spreading from there to the lower income areas and then coming back to the city's better off areas often via domestic help and drivers. So even though in the end the number of cases in slums and chawls might be higher than in better off areas of Mumbai owing to the much larger number of people there, the relative rates and the size of spread is not in proportion to the relative disparity in population density or wealth. The argument made here by pro-lockdowners is that this is because of containment measures. But even with the tightest containment and lockdown, you still have levels of congestion in these slums and chawls that are several times higher than anything in the more upscale areas. Data on COVID-19 in Chennai, Delhi and Hyderabad is not yet being released on a neighborhood basis. So it's not possible at the moment to plot the picture of the disease in these cities based on locality and income profile. But there is some indication of a much more complex dynamic than the simple one of lesser wealth or infrastructure deciding the course of this disease. The district-wise data in Delhi, for instance, shows a fairly broad distribution of cases between richer and poorer areas. Even assuming that the poorer pockets of these cities will eventually outpace the richer ones by wider margins, there is something to be understood in the relatively slow and small spread in these areas for all these months, even after the relaxation of lockdown, despite the congestion and the poverty. We seem to be missing something about the true nature of COVID-19 transmission, even though we so confidently set out to fight it by controlling transmission. Could it be that there is more robust immunity to infectious disease among people whose work involves hard labor or who live in chronically unhygienic conditions. Favela activists are saying that residents in their 70s are recovering from COVID-like symptoms without medication or testing, and this is giving rise to a feeling that COVID might not be so serious a threat in the favelas. So, while it is laudable to be concerned that the poorer parts of Mumbai or any other place should not be left behind in receiving care for COVID-19, there has been a blind spot about the disproportionate effect of containment measures on the poor. People living in big homes with access to gardens, community parks and wide lanes are nowhere near as confined under lockdown as a family of five in a one-room shanty. Essential supplies got disrupted, for example, in Chilla village in East Delhi. The water supply reduced to only once in four days. These are not problems in the well-serviced higher income localities of the city. The degree of surveillance and police presence to which slums in Delhi were subjected was much greater than for the rest of the city. Drones were deployed in Dharavi. I'm not aware of them having been used in Malabar Hills. The official policy of the Mumbai Municipal Authorities 
is to seal entire slums and place police on guard when cases are found there. <clears throat> but in the city's better off areas, containment is limited to individual buildings or even to single floors within a building and it is left to the building society to self-police for containment. Now, of course, these building societies went completely nuts. And, um, you know, I, I actually feel that it's a shame uh, that, uh, that they are here in a, in a democratic uh, society. Uh, they really should go to North Korea uh, so that they can express, you know, the full potential uh, of their despotism. You know, I mean, there's so much talent there uh, that is being wasted uh, in a democratic society among these residents, welfare associations and housing uh, societies. Right. <clears throat> in South Africa, which called out its army as well as its police to implement containment measures, videos of brutal police action in poor black neighborhoods surfaced on social media within days of lockdown. People pointed out how the police would beat up local viol lockdown violators in black neighborhoods while negotiating with people in white ones. UN human rights officials reported that the South African police used tear gas and water bombs to enforce social distancing, especially in poor neighborhoods, they said. An early victim of disease policing in South Africa was the poor and densely populated Johannesburg suburb of Hillbrow. The papers reported that police with shambooks these are heavy whips made of hippopotamus or rhinoceros hide or plastic, would leap out of their cars to whip and chase civilians found out in the open. One report from South Africa's Mail and Guardian tellingly describes the feelings of the Hillbrow residents to these measures. Quote, residents in Hillbrow's crowded apartment buildings watched this police brutality unfold from their balconies and would jeer whenever the policemen got out of their vehicles. <laughs> Good for them. Many residents we spoke to felt they were on the receiving end of an excessive and unfair response by the state to the threat of the COVID-19 pandemic. In Kenya, the familiar pattern was repeated of the poor being at the receiving end of mandatory containment measures, both from law enforcement and hunger. An Al Jazeera report from early April describes how informal workers like street hawkers and meat vendors disproportionately bore the brunt of COVID-19 curfew, forcing people, this is what it says, forcing people to be at home by 7pm significantly reduces working hours for those selling goods from roadside stands and outdoor markets, further exacerbating the economic hardship brought on by the coronavirus. Street vendors and workers with long commutes, some of the poorest and most vulnerable groups in Nairobi, are the ones most at risk of being caught outside and punished by the police. A local meat vendor is reported to say, if you defend against coronavirus in this way, many people will die of hunger. <clears throat> on April 10th in India, when the posh neighbourhoods of Mumbai had driven the city's case tally well into the hundreds, Dharavi was sealed off at just 14 cases. Its fruit vendors and hawkers were banned 
and overnight sellers lost their income and residents were left <clears throat> with nowhere to go to get provisions with the shutting down of roadside food stalls the many young single men who come as migrant labor to mumbai to earn for their families in their villages lost their only place to eat in mumbai and pune when a shutdown of non essential services was announced in march their migrant worker population thronged the train stations in the tens of thousands desperate to get home most of them were daily wagers and the lockdown immediately cut them off from the means to eat and live construction laborers who would just camp out on building sites suddenly had nowhere to stay asahi maranahe tasahi a migrant worker in the crowd is reported to have said we will die this way or that way similar scenes were reported from new delhi's anand vihar bus terminal a week after its lockdown where massive crowds of ga- workers gathered to try and catch a bus home to their villages in Uttar Pradesh and Bihar they said they had no money or food left what corona my children are hungry they have walked from gurugram with me do you think corona is what i fear was what people in the crowd said now i looked up on google maps the distance of gurugram uh, from the anand vihar bus terminal it's 40 kilometers and google maps says that it takes over 8 hours by foot so this is the kind of journey that people were being put through with their children <clears throat> it is difficult to express in words the extremes to which migrant laborers were put by lockdown with their meager possessions in gunny bags balanced on their heads either barefoot or in thin chappals holding their children by the hand migrant workers streamed out of the cities in a passionate bid to somehow get to their villages far away from the city that had suddenly lost its mind this meant a walk of several days with nothing but tea and a little rice with salt to sustain them starting with hundreds of kilometers in the city's highways over open roads that were already steaming in the early summer heat highways are not meant for walking they have no pavements no shelter not a tree in sight for miles there is nothing to give even a moment's relief from the blistering summer sun some of the walking laborers were mere boys of 14 and 15 braving life in the city all by themselves they had quickly grown older than their years they had transformed from boys to men while shouldering the financial responsibility for their parents and siblings back home but when they were interviewed by television reporters who asked why they were leaving they suddenly became children again one simply stood there and wept he was just a boy now who wanted to get back to his mother as the lockdown stretched on and on in india into may and more and more migrant labor families were forced to leave the cities we witnessed pregnant women among the thousands walking home cradling their swollen bellies at 7 and 8 months pregnant lockdown had forced these women to take to the road on foot 
in temperatures now touching 40 degrees Celsius. There were reports of women giving birth on the side of the highway on saris and sheets spread out by their fellow travelers and getting up hours after delivering their babies to continue the walk home. Usually these laborers would go home laden with presents and clothes for their families. But now they were putting all their savings into hitching a ride on trucks and oil tankers to get home. Some of these laborers had had to ride home for the money to make the trip. A black market had opened where people were paying as much as the fare of a budget air ticket to get home crammed into these trucks. Some set off for home on cycles bought at several times the market price. <clears throat> this was how loss upon loss of every kind was piled on their heads by the lockdown. As it grew hotter, the walking laborers began to collapse on the roadside from heat stroke. Others, including children, died of hunger and exhaustion on the way. It is completely wrong to see this as a straightforward matter of better managing the lockdown. While migrant labor was jamming the trains and bus stations to get a ride home, the editorial pages of newspapers in India were jammed with expert opinion on how lockdown could have been better managed. Certainly, India's lockdown, announced with no prior notice and no arrangement for the supply of essential goods and services, was probably the most reckless and ill-planned in the world. Absolutely no one had anticipated the migrant labour crisis. But it is flying in the face of reality to assume that living for weeks and months on rice and dal in a government-sponsored camp, even if these had been provided for, was a practical or realistic or humane option for these migrant workers. What am I here for if I cannot earn, was the common refrain. People hid in milk tankers to get away. Stopping work did not simply leave these people without means. It took away the reason for their presence in the city, away from their beloved families and native soil. Lockdown was much more than an economic disruption for them. <clears throat> It shattered the very reason for their enduring the squalor and deprivation of their lives in the city. Even when the government made provisions, people were not able to access them. Walking home on the Noida Agra Expressway, daily wagers said that they had had to leave as their employers had told them that they would not be paid until the lockdown was over. They said they had no ration cards and so they would not have been able to avail of government rations if they had stayed on in the city. You heard a similar thing in Brazil. In Brazil, favela activists also spoke about how residents were unable to avail of government stipends as they did not have the required identity documents. There were slum dwellers from all over India who reported that government rations never found their way to them. This is not a problem of lockdown management. It is a problem of lockdown. Slums and favelas are made up of undocumented migrants living below the radar of the city authorities. 
No one really knows exactly how many of them there are. The lack of organization and paperwork is not an aberration to be fixed. It is an integral it is integral to the presence and survival of these people in the city. So measures are taken in the name of the poor without engaging with them or understanding their attitude to disease. People in slums and favelas tough it out every day in poor and unhealthy conditions. In India, every disease known to man festers in its slums. They come up next to garbage dumps, these slums, and over canals that are fetid with the waste of the entire city. The poor are not unscientific in their approach to the threat of disease. They have simply learned to live with it. And when we in India began opening up from lockdown in May, COVID-19 was not a fraction less lethal or contagious than it was before. We have just arrived psychologically to the place where the poor have always been. Actually, you know, it's the place where anyone in India has been. We just forgot. We suddenly thought that we were uh, in, you know, in Iceland or something where there's, there's no disease. In mid-June, when the COVID cases exploded in India, in numbers that were higher by the lakhs, by mid-June, numbers that were higher by the lakhs from the few hundred when we had lockdown in March, we persisted in the project of unlock. Why was this? Because we had learned the lesson of the futility of lockdown, a lesson learned on the back of the suffering of the poor. This disease is going to make its way through our population one way or the other. Had we remained unlocked with a cluster containment strategy as we now have, we would at least have avoided the damage of lockdown. What makes the containment approach even more questionable is that despite all the hardship it imposed, the cases relentlessly grew and grew. As the cases grew, so did the damage caused by lockdown. Favela activist Hene Silva said that the population of favelas actually expanded during lockdown with the addition of the new poor, what he calls the new poor, who lost their jobs or small businesses owing to the lockdown. In Bangladesh's Daulatia slum, the government had provided rations, but three weeks after lockdown, it was the loss of income and inability to send money back home that was concerning the women there. The Bangladesh government had kept its garments factories open throughout the lockdown. But even so, 10 lakh workers, a million workers in this industry, uh, comprising a quarter of the total, lost their jobs as big international clients reneged on their orders. <clears throat> in June, about two and a half months uh, after social distancing, some young, favela activi uh, some young favela dwellers in Rio seem to have been keen to get back to life again. There were reports of so-called funk dances, funk balls being held and of establishments reopening. Conscientious community activists like Hane Silva 
zealously went around telling people not to have their dances, warning that such events would be bad for everyone. You can't help feeling sorry for the young favela dwellers with itchy feet after weeks of lockdown that seemed not to have stopped the rise of COVID-19 anyway. And it seems a bit unfair for them to have to remain under an endless ban from socializing, considering that COVID-19 spread among the rich folk of Rio as they met in their exclusive clubs. Pakistan's Prime Minister Imran Khan was severely criticized for allowing people to attend prayers in the mosque during Ramzan. This was seen as irresponsible or somehow pandering to the religious orthodox in Pakistan. But he said, very humanely, that he could not bring himself to arrest people for wanting to go to the mosque to pray. And shouldn't we respect the fact that they went of their own volition and took precautions? There is something more than a little patronizing in saying that people who choose to go ahead with praying or partying don't know better and need to be guided by their betters in the community. Maybe they were wiser and better than those who followed the hollow gospel of lockdown. <clears throat> As in the case of the funk dances of Brazil's favelas, authorities in South Africa found it hard to stop people in the poor and significantly black townships from socializing. Apparently, there were many cases of what is called backyarding, where two or three men would get together for a beer in the backyards of their own homes. Surely, this poses a minimal public health threat, especially to better off South Africans drinking beer in the privacy of their villas. But public health enforcement as party pooper took its ugliest turn here, with people actually being killed, being killed by the police for backyarding. South Africa's police minister, Beki Tele, had reportedly given orders not to be nice to people suspecting of breaking lockdown. In Alexandra, soldiers stormed a man's house after claiming to have spotted him having a beer with a friend in his backyard. They beat him up so badly that he died three hours later. In another poor black locality called Vaslorus, a man was shot dead by the police when chased into the veranda of his own home from a neighbor's house where the police claimed that beer was being sold. Children of his household aged 5, 6 and 11 years were injured in the shootout. In France, the enforcement of lockdown exacerbated tensions with the police in the low-income districts surrounding Paris. These districts have large numbers of residents of African origin. A few days into lockdown, videos came out on social media of heavy-handed police arrests of people out in the open in these areas. The public commented that the same harsh approach would not have been taken in the better-off areas of Paris. Things deteriorated to the point where there was rioting in many of these localities. The police claimed that the encounters in these areas were owing to trouble with drug gangs whose activities were being interrupted by lockdown. The French minister dug in, the French interior minister dug in, saying that the rioters could not deter the enforcement of lockdown. It looked very much like a case of the authorities using lockdown to settle old scores. The situation got so bad 
that a petition was taken out by a number of human rights and Muslim community ad advocacy groups, including Human Rights Watch, condemning these events. In the US, <clears throat> African Americans were found to be faring much worse in the COVID-19 outbreak than white Americans. They were showing higher rates of mortality and in some cases also of infection. The state of Louisiana, which has a large black population that outnumbers whites in some cities, was an early COVID-19 hotspot in the US. Many black activists and community voices were critical of the authorities for failing the black community in the COVID crisis. They said that owing to poverty and marginalization, blacks in general had poorer health and lesser access to good medical services, and this was the reason COVID-19 disproportionately hurt their community. There are reports of black doctors and activists being concerned about this from the start and trying to persuade others in the community of the threat of COVID-19. But no one of any race was much concerned about COVID-19 at the time. Louisiana's COVID-19 outbreak began in New Orleans, weeks after their famous Mardi Gras festival. Many of their initial cases were traced back to this festival, which was held in late February. Activists said that more should have been done to spread awareness of COVID-19 in black communities and that government awareness campaigns should have included announcements that were specifically targeted at blacks. But officials said that they were concerned that this would lead to stigmatization. The initial approach of the authorities to not declare race-based data about COVID-19 was criticized for hiding the special vulnerability of the black community to this disease. These concerns were correct. As soon as race-based data was released, it was clear that blacks were disproportionately affected by COVID-19 in many places in the US. But we have to pause here to see the full implication of this line of argument which essentially follows the WHO-led public health thinking behind lockdown, which is that the poor and marginalized are especially vulnerable to disease, as well as short on resources for treatment, and so containment measures are necessary, above all, to protect them. Imagine how it would have gone down if President Donald Trump, of all people, had suggested shutting down Mardi Gras in February because of some flu-like disease in far-off Wuhan. This is not to say that people would have been wrong not to have heeded him, but to point out that it is foolish and dangerous to ask for already antagonized communities to take such severe and unprecedented self-inhibiting action at the word of authorities whom they do not trust and who have let them down so often in the past. The explosion of the Black Lives Matters protests all across America in late May, after the death of George Floyd while being arrested, shows the depths of racial tension in the US. Versions of these tensions exist between different communities in all countries. The WHO and public health officials are demanding containment measures by assuming a trust and goodwill among the people and between the people and the authorities that does not exist and which has been betrayed over and over by majorities vis-a-vis -vis minorities in society, not to mention the ever-present and universal phenomena of government abuse and incompetence.
all this has to be weighed in the balance before choosing to take a containment strategy against disease in the name of saving the poor. <clears throat> and I believe if these considerations are really given their due, then we would never have gone, gone for this uh, containment approach. An Indian Express report from the slums of Dharavi in late May has the reporter accompanying social workers known, and, known as Asha workers on a hunt for a family that has been snitched on by a neighbour for breaching quarantine. The Public Health Administration is using Asha workers who know the labyrinthine gullies of Dharavi to hunt the family down. <clears throat> now all the slums and ghettos of India are built around a maze of narrow gullies. Ordinarily, they form an almost invulnerable shield over their residents against even the most powerful of their counterparts in the city. Anyone can hide for months without being found in our gullies, residents will tell you proudly. In normal times, they would be right. But COVID-19 has left the poor with nowhere to hide. In Delhi, <clears throat> in late June, when the central government tried to impose mandatory institutional quarantine on everyone coming in contact with COVID positives, the decision was overturned in 24 hours by the Supreme Court. This is what happens when it applies to everyone. Compare that with the fate of the family in Dharavi. In the reporter's own words, the family insists its mistaken identity, nobody is sick. Eventually, it emerges that the neighbours had complained against the family for not completing quarantine after a contact was found positive. Tempers run high briefly as the young man of the family emerges at the doorway and threatens to assault the neighbour who complained. ANM Vibha Kulkarni, that's the female health worker, says this is common and the team deals with the reluctant family with good humour and tact. Put them all inside for two weeks, a neighbour shouts. <clears throat> The hapless family is then frog-marched to some no doubt miserable hovel for a spell in the grandiosely named institutional quarantine. Better off people are able to quarantine at home. The numbers speak for themselves. By the end of April, around 1.7 lakh people had been quarantined in Mumbai. 10,000 of them were in institutional quarantine. And um, it was reported that of these in the third week of May, 7,000 were from Dharavi. Officials were reported to say that more people from slums will be kept in institutional quarantine facilities. In Africa, as in India, quarantine and other mandatory measures fell harder on the poor. UN human rights officials noted that those who cannot pay, pay bribes, poor people, are taken to mandatory quarantine centres. In South Africa, the homeless were rounded up and taken to quarantine shelters that were in such poor conditions that they would run away. There was also the fear of contagion from being concentrated in these shelters. Officials in Louisiana were right to believe that racially targeted awareness campaigns for COVID-19 would have been stigmatizing. Asking people to essentially look upon others as contamination risks and pandering to people's instincts of self-preservation gave free reign to their pettiest and most blatantly divisive tendencies, from rampaging through stores to hoard essential goods to vigilantes beating up people for spreading COVID. To be fair, even without a government-sponsored containment drive, 
These atavistic instincts, which we believe belonged to a past age when lepers were driven out of their villages, would have quickly risen to the surface when confronting a deadly infectious disease like COVID-19. Messages circulated by residents' welfare associations and housing societies during this whole episode are a good testament to that. You don't really have to teach people to distance themselves from others over an infectious disease. The fear of death combined with people's innate prejudices and selfishness will do the work very well by itself. The intervention of a good civil society ought to have been to anticipate and moderate these reactions. But civil society advocates were at the forefront, at the forefront of demanding a complete lockdown in the name of protecting the poor and marginalized. In many countries that have right-wing majoritarian governments, such as India, Brazil, UK and the US, it was liberals, left-wing activists and opposition party mayors and governors who were the earliest, loudest and most insistent voices for social distancing, the banning of public gatherings, stay-at-home orders and other restrictive and intrusive state measures against COVID-19. Indian progressives saw no irony in advocating social distancing after having spent generations fighting caste-based personal pollution norms and touch taboos. No one in civil society in India raised a question about the stigmatization that is embedded that is embedded in notions of keeping interpersonal distance. We were now one people facing one germ with one united purpose to flatten the curve. And anyone who objected that this was actually flattening the people was unscientific, irresponsible and callous about the poor. <clears throat> because the intrusion and repression of disease containment measures were couched in the language of public policy and social work, which is sacred to liberals everywhere, they fell into a familiar pattern of going in the teeth of all liberal values to become the greatest friends and advocates of state power. They did not see the ways in which non-pharmaceutical interventions for disease control are directly and immediately stigmatizing, divisive and generally toxic. They did not see that they were demanding what was in effect a total and indefinite suspension of the very civil liberties and constitutional freedoms on which liberal society is founded and on which the poor and marginalized depend to extract some pickings of justice and fairness from society. They rushed to show what good global citizens they were and how caring they were for the poor by espousing the creed of disease containment. Tomorrow we will continue our survey of the injustice and violence of disease containment. And I'd like to say that, you know, I dedicate this part of my lecture to the spirit of my countrymen who just got up and walked when they were, uh, when the attempt was made to lock them down in this bizarre and completely lunatic way. And, <clears throat> and I did this work in the same spirit. You know, I'm not an epidemiologist or a professional scientist. 
but i i also decided to walk in my chappals on the open road and get into all the all all, all these reports and, and all this other the science that we were being told um uh that we had to follow and all of us should should do the same enough is really enough everything that i have described is what has happened in the last few months but every day and as all of us are experiencing they were getting calls from people i mean uh, uh, life has has been stopped in a way that no one could ever have even imagined and it's it's going to it's going to be so long before people have the courage to start living life again based on which people's livelihoods and and other things can go on it is so deep and so wide i don't even know if the, if we will recover uh, in in my generation okay so uh, this concludes part 6 uh, of this lecture series i thank you very much uh, for your uh, attention and your patience and your interest i, I really appreciate that and uh, today's lecture will go up later tonight on my blog covidlectures.blogspot.com where the full paper and parts 1 to 5 of my earlier lectures have already been published along with links to the youtube videos and podcast for this series see you tomorrow 7 pm india time 2:30 pm london time 9:30 am new york time on facebook live for another round of the covid lecture series dodgy science woeful ethics Thank you.